the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage? It's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 3.10 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where... Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness, and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame, in some ways, can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame, in other ways, can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis 3, 10 and following, that, that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves, and as a result, um, have to deal with that damaged view as it relates to even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them, literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us, new book out by InterVarsity Press called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories we believe about ourselves, as I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a certain fashion in which shame can be helpful? If, for example, if I, if I were to back into a lit stove... Without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame to a degree could function like that, could be helpful to us if, if, if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically? I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from a, from a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families, and let alone what we know from a neurobiological perspective, that the experience of shame is common, it's normal, uh, we experience it early and often as human beings, actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it, given how it functions in our brain. Uh, but it's also true that uh, the, the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, than do in our response to it. It's not even so much that shame in and of itself and our experience of it 
is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help, not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you've already mentioned, what their, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this. We reinforce it in our own lives, and then we tend to spread that, because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions, and so we don't just as we most commonly do, shame ourselves, even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people, uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it. And the irony about this is that there is that sense when, when we um, are aware of our own shame, um, we feel vulnerable. I mean, I, I, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you, you can correct me on that. But, but there's interesting something there because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing that, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God and be able to find forgiveness, they, they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same? Well, we certainly do the same, and I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book, um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we point to is, is this notion that the, uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable, uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing, like we don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, what's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter 2, the woman and the man, the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description. In the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. And the reality is that, you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places, when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, it doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now, what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis in that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion. And the irony now, as we see, that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings when we are quite literally naked and unashamed. We would say, it's, I mean, I don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby. 
both of those things between a man and a woman and then the woman delivering a baby, both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy, require nakedness, that vulnerability, but are also very, very powerfully creative. When we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because of my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the text tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image that we are made as plural beings. We are made as people who were intended for each other. And therefore, in Genesis 2, 18, when he says it's not good for the man to be alone, in fact, because we are so vulnerable, it is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed. I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves, but it is using shame to dismantle, to deconstruct, to destroy the entire creation, not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe. If you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going we're gonna to turn an interesting corner in this dialogue because it, it's ironic that, as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about certainly healing and restoration. But isn't it interesting how typically our response is that when, when we become aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, we, we recognize that we're, we're fearful of being exposed to others. But as Dr. Thompson points, points out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects, in particular, are exposed to others, and yet wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that that God died for us while we were yet sinners— understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and, and rather than, than allowing shame to, to repel us from God, to rather propel us to God. How do we make that happen, though? Well, it's a great question, and I think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter. It's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection, 
and of course after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And of course this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think for me this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of, uh, one, can, one, one can imagine, uh, without of course having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the Gospel around this story, one could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that, that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter, asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture, and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done, and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. 
And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the scriptures and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ. So when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of, I think what you're suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame, as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal-level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to, to experience what it's like to be forgiven. That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, that our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another, and a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles, in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not shame ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. We, in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, therefore, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships, catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks, that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that, uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damage view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can um, bring about not just the the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, 
The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation, speaks all across the country on the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, We appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperatures, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it, it would seem that not only are we in trouble, But many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, uh, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but, but even in terms of just our our overall influence in, in the day-to-day uh, life in America. Why is that? You know, I, I think it boils down to, to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s, and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, those that grew up during the sexual revolution, and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where, uh, quite frankly, uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom. And um, quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going, going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s, homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's, it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just 
just stay back. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, Abraham Lincoln said it best. This is now the philosophy of our government. And we now live in a place and time where um, I think, and then this is just my personal philosophy. It's one of the reasons that I travel the country talking about this stuff. Um, I think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits. Our pulpits aren't the same anymore. They're so watered down and uh, preaching a, a, you know, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door, and there's no truth being preached anymore. So really, in, in a large sense, then, this is sort of the product of erosion. I mean, the, the old saying that yeah. the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river, and before you know it, it's cut the Grand Canyon. And in some respects, while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom. Uh, you know, dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at, at the institutional level, within public education, certainly within right. higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right. Some Some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that, and certainly this is not meant to be a blanket accusation, Pastor, but there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning, and, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill, and I have a salary that has to be paid, and, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church, so I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this, and as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we, when we start, and, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing, and this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just, you know, stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But you don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out. And when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God and you're going to accept it. So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the, the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened, is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a, he was a cleric during the American Revolution. And he actually says, I mean, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, if there's, if there's a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. 
He goes on and he says, if the world loses interest in religion, that's key right now. That's You, you talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance uh, in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington, he did not attribute the Continental Army, he did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen, the, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach, and that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, e- even a, a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the pews, uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavarria as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here perhaps at hand is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the, the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of, I think, the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, There is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of Everybody kind of their own corner, doing their own thing, um, not not giving much concern to a sense of, of cooperation with one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do, uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and of course to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody may be a little bit more successful in one arena or another than we are 
And so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel a, a bit intimidated. Uh, what about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of, of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? You know, I, I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and we're, we're so disjointed to the part. There is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And uh, when you think about it that way, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the Word in the book of 1 Corinthians is, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. You know, the, the nom- I, I, I'm a part of a group, uh, it's called the Radicals, and uh, we all have different, quote-unquote, denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background. Uh, but we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor or a preacher somewhere, but we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on, a, on a video platform, and we all started meeting together, and, and among us there's millions of people that follow us on social media and, and, uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny, the Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus and we start deciding to be Christians— Man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the Word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christians, we will turn, not not the nation, we'll turn the world upside Of course, one of the other challenges I think that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship really <laughs> looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate. Uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute. And they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote unquote Christian, but they've never been right. through a discipleship process. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to read the word. They've never shared their faith with another person. Right. Right. We just basically convert people and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians. And it's just never going to work. Yeah, and when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It never, it's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly, and that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70%, 60 to 70% of our youth groups 
leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age. We're losing them to sec- we're losing them to secular progressivism, mm. and, uh, and and that that's a big that's a staggering number. Sixty to seventy percent in the churches of Christ, it's higher than that. It's seventy five to eighty percent. Um, but I you know like I said, I preach for I'll, I'll preach at any church they want me to come and speak at. Uh, but but here's the thing. Here's the thing with that, and it, it's it's very simple. It, it's very simple because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity, and um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it. I know I've said it. We tell people all the time, "Hey, I'm just I'm, I'm a sinner just like you," and and that's true to a degree. But I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved. And, and the reason that we tell people, I'm a sinner just like you, is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, because, you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we, and Jesus, in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus. And we don't want to do that anymore. So we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you. All you have to do is follow Jesus because that takes the whole, don't, don't follow me. Don't. But here's the thing. Me as a Christian, as a church leader, I want people to follow me. I want people behind me because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall. That means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down. You know, so it's okay to teach somebody, and, and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus, because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing, and I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement, and that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that yeah. Scripture talks of, that is ne- necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Yeah. Now, that said, let's talk about um, this um, spiritual renewal weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I, I go and speak somewhere, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be I'm going to do six lessons in three days um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you if you have if you're going to a community church, if you're going to it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to. We want you to come to this event because here's the thing is um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on in Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse twelve. The, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word, the word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember, that you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what God did give us? God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore, and you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And 
what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household. The sense of, of the, the, the sense of cooperation, the sense of working together, the, the sense of building each other up, because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up. Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewShavaria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-V-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewShavaria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times and the dates and everything are listed there. And, of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andrew and just get into Shava, R-I-L, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find him that way, too. Or, again, the Twitter at, at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights and encourage listeners, hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one. What does not only that that look like, but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us? As I said earlier, while the Bible is the standard setter, the church is the standard bearer. Our thanks to Pastor Andrew Chavarria for being with us tonight on this segment of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.